Have you ever had an occasion where someone offered to you a Christmas gift and you said, no thank you? <laughs> if you have had that occasion, I'm sorry to have reminded you of it. <laughs> I'm sure that wasn't easy and I'm sure you had a good reason for rejecting it. I asked that question because I don't think that people have had that experience, at least generally. Most people have not had that experience where somebody has offered them a gift on Christmas and they said, you know what, I'm going to pass it up. I, I don't want that. No thank you. I'm guessing that in all the different gifts that we've exchanged and received over the years, it's all different kinds of gifts, right? The timely gift card, the well-selected piece of apparel, the maybe re-gifted something or other. No one has ever said most people haven't said, no, thank you. We tend to receive the gifts that are offered to us and given to us. That's one thing that the gifts we receive have in common. They are typically received. Yet the irony of Christmas is that while so many will be exchanging and receiving gifts, there is a gift of unsurpassed value that so often goes unreceived and or underappreciated the Son who has been given, to use language from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He's not to be rejected, He's to be received. And when He is received, He is not just to be had, but He's to be treasured and enjoyed and embraced. And one of the best ways to better appreciate the child who has been born and the Son who was given is to know more than just His name. So you can know that His name is Jesus, but you want to know more than just His name. You want to know about Him. What is He like? Tell me more about this child who was born and this son who was given. And one of the ways that you could do that is via the conduit of studying Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I think it's an aid to better appreciate, to give a better appraisal of the greatest gift that's ever been given, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we make our way into the text, I first want to create a little bit of context because we're jumping into Isaiah 9. But Isaiah 9 comes after Isaiah 8. No surprise there. So I want to create a little bit of context here. As we approach this chapter of the prophet Isaiah, there are, if you will, thick clouds overhead, as it were. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, you might say, were putting their trust in all of the wrong places. The northern kingdom of Israel had made an alliance with Syria. We've seen that unpacked a little bit in Isaiah 7, and we studied that last year as we thought about the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And God prophesied that Ephraim, that was the tribe that represented the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, this is after the kingdom split. The united kingdom became a divided kingdom. And the northern kingdom of Israel, where there were ten tribes represented by Ephraim, at least by name, oftentimes in the Scriptures, God said Ephraim would be broken. You see that in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9, and indeed they were. Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, would fall to Assyria in 722 B.C., and captivity would ensue. But then there was the southern kingdom of Judah. And as we studied last year, we saw that King Ahaz, who was a wicked king, did all kinds of wicked things when you look into, in the Scriptures. One of the things that he did was he put his trust in the king of Assyria for deliverance. You might remember that God basically offered him a blank check. Whatever sign you want, Ahaz, I'll give it to you. Ask of me a sign. I'll give it to you. You don't have to put your trust in Assyria. I'll give you a sign. 
but in a false posture of piety. He already made up his mind and he told God he didn't want a sign. The reason why he didn't want a sign, he made up his mind. He was going to go with Assyria. And Assyria would provide temporary relief. That's one of the ironies of the situation. He got what he wanted from Assyria, but then that was all. You read elsewhere in the Scriptures and you see he would get no further help from Assyria. He was in some ways milked by Assyria and Judah would be on a collision course with captivity. Not from Assyria, but eventually from Babylon. Now, it's a little bit of context leading into Isaiah 9. A little bit more context going in. If you look at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, right as you come into chapter 9, you see God basically warning the people of Isaiah's day not to seek revelation from places where they shouldn't be seeking it. People were seeking revelation from mediums. They were seeking revelation from wizards. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19 They were seeking the dead on behalf of the living, to use language again from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. God's word, you look in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, 26. You can look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 and 11. Expressly forbade such pursuits. The people were playing with demonic darkness, thinking they were pursuing light when they were immersing themselves in darkness. Isaiah exhorted them. You would read this in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Isaiah exhorted the people to the law or to the Torah, to the instruction of Yahweh and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So God was exhorting the people through Isaiah, don't trust in these other means of revelation. You seek the instruction of Yahweh. You seek the testimony, the prophecies that Isaiah was given. And if those other people or if anyone else doesn't speak according to that, there is no light in them. Sadly, to the law and the testimony, the people did not go. And a dreary picture was painted. That's the end of Isaiah chapter 8. The people would be hard-pressed and hungry, verse 21. They would curse their king and their God for the things that were coming upon the land. That's also in chapter 8, verse 21. They would see trouble, darkness, and gloom of anguish. And it's in that context. It's into that darkness, if you will, that the promise of Christmas comes. There was hope that was greater than the gloom. We'll see it as we get into the text. The first thing that you'll see as we study verse 1 is that gloom has an expiration date. We begin in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, where we read, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. And that could be rendered, as you see in the ESV and in other places, as afterward they would be greatly honored, something along those lines. goes on to further describe that area by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. So the first thing you see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, is that a change is promised. There is going to come a moment where the gloom is going to be lifted. You kind of feel that, if you will, when you look at the beginning of verse 1. That word, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Amidst the gloom, and when you see that word gloom in the text, that's a Hebrew word, it basically means anguish. You look at what comes before, what comes after, it essentially means anguish. Amidst the gloom, amidst the anguish that the people would experience, there was coming a brighter day. 
And look where Isaiah's attention, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, look where his attention is drawn. His attention is drawn to the northern region of the promised land, to specific tribes that were in the northern part of Israel, namely the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Now, the problem with being in the northernmost part of the region of Israel is that when you have enemies coming from the north, which was often the case, such was the case with Assyria, they came knocking on your door or kicking down your door first. And that's what would happen to the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. When Assyria came, they were the first to be attacked and subsequently subjugated by Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrian army. You could look at 1 Kings 15, verse 29 to see that unpacked a little bit more. They were, to use language from Isaiah 9:1, lightly esteemed or brought into contempt because of their unrepentant sin and rebellion, which resulted in defeat and captivity. Yet I want you to see that God would appoint that region, that region that came under that initial attack and subjugation from the Assyrians to be the first witness of the bright light of Jesus' public itinerant ministry. You can see that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. More about that and what went on in the first year of Jesus' ministry. You can see that in John's gospel. But then when he begins to preach the kingdom of God, it's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, takes place right in that area. So more about that in a moment, but I don't want you to miss what's happening here. There's mercy amidst judgment. God is shining light into darkness. Despite the sin and the rebellion of the people, and indeed it was much, you look at the northern kingdom, you look at the kings they had, you look at the things that they did, there was a lot of sin, there was a lot of rebellion, and God is shining light to His people. Yahweh is setting before His people hope. Hope. Hope can make a tremendous difference in a person's life and in a person's disposition. You take away hope from a person... And things could become really depressing, really despondent, really, really dreary, really fast. But hope can make a tremendous difference in a person's life and disposition. I read a story last week that it's one of those stories that appears to have made its rounds. I do not know whether it is fictional or actual, but it was a story that spoke of a man that approached a, a little league game on one afternoon and he approached the, the dugout of one team and he asked the boy in the dugout what the score of the game was and the boy said, 18 to nothing, we're behind. The man responded by saying, boy, I'll bet you're discouraged. And the boy responded by saying, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten to bat yet. <laughs> now, I don't know whether that's fictional or actual, but the point is clear. Despite the dire straits of being down 18 runs in the first inning, top of the first inning, you're down 18 runs. Despite that, this boy's countenance was not downcast. It was uplifted, if you will, because he had what? Hope. Because he had hope. Hope lifted the boy's head, and hope, you might say, was a protectant against discouragement. And that hope, that kind of hope, was uncertain. Biblical hope, as you know, and that word hope is used in the New Testament. I think every time, except maybe one time when it's used in 1 Timothy, every time it's used in the New Testament, it speaks of a certain thing, a certain hope. Biblical hope is sure. 
And I want you to see it's so like God to ameliorate and temper the present pain that his people would experience with the certainty or the hope of a glorious future. It's just so like God. See your God. That's who he is. At least one Christmas truth that I want you all to be reminded of this day is that for every person who has trusted truly in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, for every person who has done that, the present anguish that you might feel cannot compare with the future glory that is to come. The weight of sorrow, the feelings of despair, the not-so-merry-go-round carousel of emotions that you could feel during holidays like this, it has an expiration date. The gloom will give way to glory because of the Messiah, the child who was born and the son who was given, Jesus Christ. That's not pie in the sky. You'll see, given the past tense of the language used, a prophetic past tense to communicate certainty, it's not pie in the sky. It's as good as done in the mind of God. Now we get to verse 2. We look at verse 2 and we see that Jesus is the great light that was spoken of by Isaiah. In verse 2 we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now if Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and this 2 sound familiar to you, it's probably because you recognize it from Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 4 is where Matthew quotes this text to show that Jesus fulfilled this text. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, we read the following. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulon and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by, the, by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. I want to call your attention to a few things here. A few things. First, I want you to be reminded of, through this text and the prophecy fulfilled, God is in control of the details of history. He's in control of all of it. He was in control of Caesar Augustus, ultimately. As Caesar Augustus moved his hand and the whole Roman Empire moved as a result, when he issued a decree that all the world was to be brought under the census, as it were. God and His sovereign providence moved Mary and Joseph to right where they needed to be so that the word of the prophet Micah would be fulfilled and Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. As Jesus after hearing that John had been put in prison, departed to Galilee. He left Nazareth. He dwells in Capernaum. That wasn't by happenstance. God is in control of the details of history. Even that's happening so as to fulfill God's holy and inerrant word. So be reminded that God is control, in control of the details of history. The second thing I want you to see from Isaiah 9-2 and Matthew's use of it is that Jesus is the great light spoken of by Isaiah. The people sat in darkness. So they sat in darkness. That, that speaks of despair. It speaks of sin. It speaks of sin and the despair that sin brings and so on. Hopelessness and so on. They were sitting in darkness, but then they see a great light. And who is the great light that they saw? The light of the world. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the true light. They saw him. They saw him. As Jesus' public, you might say itinerant ministry, we see some earlier portion of Jesus' ministry recorded in the Gospel of John, the miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee and so on. You could look at the early chapters in John, you see some of the details there. You might say as his public itinerant ministry began, and he began to preach the kingdom of God and so on. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. After his rejection in the synagogue of Nazareth, you see that in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, the initial rays of light of his public itinerant ministry shined not in Jerusalem, a place where you would find so many of the self-righteous religious leaders of the day who thought they had light, but whatever light they thought they had was not the light, since they would come to reject the true light in the world. But he comes to the northern region of Israel, of the promised land, the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, that land that was under the initial attack and subjugation of the Assyrians. He comes there, and interestingly enough about that place, it was a mixed bag. It was mixed of Jews and Gentiles. As you see, it's referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. I can't say this as a certainty, but I can say it as a possibility, perhaps even a probability, that those in Jerusalem would look down upon those who were in Zebulon and Naphtali, mixed population, Jews being so close to and so near Gentiles and so on. And that's where Jesus goes. And he shines his bright light there. The true light, the light of the world glorious shine, gloriously shine there. Two other things I'll call your attention to quickly. Note this Old Testament prophecy had a literal fulfillment. I say that because that's important to note. A literal fulfillment. Sometimes there'd be kind of there'll be Old Testament texts that have a kind of uh, typo, typological typological fulfillment in Christ. But this is an Old Testament text that has a literal fulfillment. Jesus appeared in the very places that Isaiah prophesies that he would. I think this should make New Testament Christians slow to unnecessary unnecessarily allegorize Old Testament prophecies. And fourth. This fulfillment is yet another witness to the origin, the supernatural origin of God's word. God fulfills his word. Now I want you to see, now watch, we're going to walk through verses 3 through 5 rather quickly. And I want you to feel what's going on here. Because we're going to see more about who this child is by the conditions that he brings. You don't just learn about Jesus from what verses 6 and 7 say. You learn about who Jesus is from what verses 3 through 5 say as well. Because they tell you that this one is going to bring about this state in the land, this state in the world, these conditions. So we'll walk through these verses, beginning at verse 3, where we read, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So I want you to see right now that Isaiah is going to unpack certain conditions that will come about ultimately when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth. There is the already factor, and we'll see this, that you get to enter into some of these dynamics as a Christian in the here and now. And then there's the not yet factor, the complete fulfillment of what's spoken of here. This is beautiful and this is glorious. First thing I want you to see, look at verse 3. Notice the change of direction. Isaiah is using second person pronouns here. You have multiplied the nation. And increased its joy. Beginning of verse 4. For you have broken the yoke of his burden. 
See, it's, it's a verse, verse 3, is a verse that depicts celebration. It's a verse that depicts rejo- rejoicing and happiness. True joy. Because it's depicting what the Messiah will bring about. And I think part of the celebratory nature of it is communicated, at least in some respect, in the fact that Isaiah is using second-person language here. He's not just saying, God has multiplied the nation. He's not saying in verse 4, God has broken the yoke of His burden. I just think it's worth noting that He's saying, you have done this. You have done this. As though just going from, not just saying declarative things about what God has done, but saying it to God, and I would imagine in a rather celebratory way. But He's depicting celebration. See the pictures that Isaiah is painting. He's using two pictures in verse 3. One is the joy of harvest. That's one. It's the kind of joy, he says, as when the farmer, after much sowing and tilling and watering and working, has the harvest come in and a celebration ensues. He's using the picture also of men winning a war. You imagine a long, hard-fought battle, and then there's the victory, and then there's access to the spoils of war. Both are pictures of celebration. Now watch the train of thought. This is happening, verse 3. Look at the beginning of verse 4. It begins with the word for. So this is the reason. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. So through the child who would be born, who's going to be named or identified in verses 6 and 7, through that child, there would come a day when all oppression shall cease. You look at verse 4, what is verse 4 a picture of? It's a picture of emancipation. It's a picture of liberty. It's a picture of deliverance. You look at verse 4, you have the articles of bondage, the articles of slavery, the articles of oppression, so familiar to Israelite history. Israelites knew what it was like, at least historically, to be under taskmasters. Think of Egypt, think of the beginning of Exodus. But all of that, whether through Egyptian bondage, Assyrian bondage, any other kind of bondage, it would be broken ultimately and everlastingly through the reign of the Messiah. This is the cause for the celebration in verse 3. Right? They're celebrating in verse 3, for you have done the things listed in verse 4. Notice at the end of verse 4 it says, as in the day of Midian. The day of Midian calls to mind, you might remember early on in the book of Judges, the story of Midian. You'll find it in Judges 6, Judges 7, Judges 8. And you might remember that there came an abrupt end to Midianite oppression, the Midianite oppression that Israel suffered in the days of the Judges. They were harassed seemingly relentlessly by the Midianites, but then all of a sudden that came to an abrupt end. God whittled down Gideon's army from 32,000, eventually down to 300, and he set Israel free from Midianite oppression. So celebration ensues. Verse 3, because a great glorious victory is coming. Verse 4, but wait, there's more. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 has another 4 at the beginning of it. So the oppression is going to cease. Verse 4, look at verse 5. 4, every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. To use language from Psalm 46, verse 9, he makes wars to cease from the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in fire. 
You look at verse 5. Verse 5 is basically saying that there will be and there will come a cessation of war that is brought about and imposed by the Messiah. So much so, you look at verse 5, that even the vestiges of war will be toast, as it were. Every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood, it will be burned and fuel for the fire. Even the vestiges of warfare are going to be no more. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. Now, before I help you follow the trail of fours, you look at the beginning of verse 4. There's the word four. Look at verse 5. There's the word four. I want you to see where the trail ends, kind of a climactic ending in a moment. But I first just want to encourage you to say you can enter into these blessed realities, at least in part, even right now. And if you are a son or daughter of God, these are realities you get to enjoy even at this moment. You are one who has seen the great light that has come. And I just want to encourage you, reflecting back on verse 2, not just to admire the light from a distance, but to walk in the light. It's one thing to just admire the light. Say, that light is beautiful. But Jesus isn't like Christmas lights on houses that you just kind of drive by and it doesn't affect your life. You drive by the house, you say, That's, those are some really nice lights, but it doesn't affect your life. It doesn't change the course or direction of your life. But Jesus is the light that we are to walk in, not simply admire, admire, treasure, revel in, yes, but we are to walk in His light. And if you are a Christian, even now you are to be entering into that reality, walking in His light. And then as a result of walking in His light, you know that some of the benefits that are coming in total when Jesus Christ reigns on this earth are yours to be enjoyed even right now. There's joy that you have that the Scripture would describe as unspeakable and full of glory. You have not seen Him, yet you love Him and you're filled with this joy. This is your inheritance even now that you're getting to participate in. You get to be free from the oppression of sin. No sin, to use language from Romans 6, shall have dominion over you. Regardless of what people do externally, you are free internally. You're not under bondage. The chains have been broken. I don't know what you may be struggling with. I don't know what may be kind of an issue that's kind of ongoing for you. But you are not in chains. You are not in bondage if you are Christ's. All oppression spiritually has ceased for you. The chains have fallen. The Emancipation Proclamation, as it were, has been declared. You are free in Christ Jesus. And whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. And no, you can't make wars to cease on the earth, and you can't make every vestige of war disappear. No, but you can be a peacemaker in the here and now. You can pursue peace. In and amongst the body of Christ, you can be a peacemaker with those that you come into contact with. You can, as much as it lies within you, to use language from Romans, live peaceably with all men. You could be a kind of anticipation of the age to come in your behavior, in the joy you have, in the freedom you walk in, and in the peace you pursue. Now we get to the climactic four. I love this. You look at verse three, right? There's joy. Why is there joy? Verse four. Because there's victory and oppression has ended. Why has oppression ended? Verse five. Verse five. Oppression has ended because the Messiah has imposed his will and he has made oppression to cease and he's made wars to cease. Then you get to verse six. How does that happen? How does this this oppression cease? How does this joy come? And so on. You see it right here in verse six. Four. This is the climax of the fours. For unto us a child is born. This is how the Father will do it. This is how He will bring the joy. This is how He will bring about the deliverance. This is how He will put an end to wars. For unto us a child is born. 
Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's begin with those opening words. Those opening words, for unto us a child is born. So having mentioned already that the word for, it's causal. It's explaining the reason for the aforementioned joy and celebration and the movement from gloom to light and so on. But here God's people were instructed that when the Messiah came, He wouldn't come as a full-grown man. The Messiah would be the last Adam. But He wasn't going to come as Adam in the sense that Adam, when Adam was created, He was created as a full-grown man. No, the Messiah who would come He was actually going to come as a child. He would be a baby, a child who was born. It might not seem novel, but it was necessary. The Messiah had to come and become flesh and blood, partaking of true humanity, so as to stand in the place as a representative of all that He would redeem and die for. You can essentially see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Now notice this. He would be the child that would be born, yet at the same time, He would be a son who is given. Namely, He was the eternally existing Son of God. Child who would be born, a son who would be given. This, I think, speaks to the Messiah's pre-existence. The Son has eternally existed in relationship with the Father. You look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God relationship, and the Word was God. So there's unity of essence, there's distinction of personages. The Son had always been with the Father. The Son was in the bosom of the Father, to use language from John chapter 1, verse 18. He had been in an eternal love relationship with His Father. Jesus speaks about that in John 17, 24, when He says, You loved Me before the foundation of the world. What was before the foundation of the world? God. (laughs) He would be the Son who was given. In the fullness of time, eternal deity would join Himself to humanity. The second person of the Trinity would take on human flesh, hence why this child would be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and the name transcended symbolism. It spoke of a literal reality that was happening as a result of the child's presence. God with us. And don't miss the great grace of the Father connoted in this identification. The Son who came, and the Son who was given, was given by and sent from the Father. This child would be a king. Continuing on in verse 6. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Now the government will be upon their shoulders and doubtless Christ will have people administrating his kingdom. He speaks about that in places like Matthew 19.28, Revelation 3. But ultimately, ultimately, the government will be upon his shoulder. Right now, yes, even right now, all authority in heaven and earth, has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ, even as He sits at the right hand of His Father. Ultimately, the existence that we are enjoying, the world as we know it, is under His governance and His providence. 
But there is coming a moment when he shall return and be seated on the throne of his glory, to use language from Matthew 25. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, to use language from Revelation 19.15. Then we're instructed as to who this child would be. You see that in the beginning of the second half or the last, second to last line of verse 6. And his name will be called. We'll look at each of these descriptions. The first description here is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now sometimes, you might even see it in the translation before you, sometimes these identifications are distinguished as Wonderful and Counselor. That's possible. However, given the fact that we have essentially four couplets here, we're going to see four couplets. We're going to see after this, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the way that breaks down in the language is as four couplets, I think it's more likely that the first identification here is meant to be understood as a couplet. I can't say that with definitude, but I do think it's a likelihood. He is the wonderful counselor. Wonderful. The word for wonderful here in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word that means a wonder, as in a marvelous miracle of God. You could look at Exodus 15, verse 11, Psalm 78, verse 2. It essentially speaks of something that is supernatural, Something that is beyond human comprehension. And indeed, Jesus is that. (laughs) He is a wonder. When you think of the second person of the Trinity, eternally being God, yet adding humanity to His deity without ever subtracting deity from His essence. He is indeed an astonishment and a wonder that transcends our finite understanding. But here, I think the idea appears to be, to use language from Alec Moitier, either a supernatural counselor or one giving supernatural counsel. So it speaks to the supernatural wisdom that this one who would come would have. His counsel transcends mere human knowledge. He'd be like a king. He'd be a king like Solomon in that the sense that the wisdom of God was with Solomon. You could reference 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 28. And yet he was one, as he put it, who was greater than Solomon greater than Solomon. He himself is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It should not be surprising that he is a wonderful, astonishing, supernatural counselor. And that's good news for the people of God. It's good news on Christmas and any other day of the year that you have access to such a counselor. What do you need counsel for? Don't make the mistake of Ahaz in the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahaz representing the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel. Don't make the mistake of looking for counsel in all the wrong places. Seeking it from search engines and from people before you ask of it from God. Now there's a place to get counsel from people, of course, and a multitude of counselors, their safety. But you have access to the wonderful counselor. And if the queen of Sheba would be so desirous that she would make her way to hear the wisdom of Solomon, how much more ought we to pursue to hear the wisdom of Christ in the Scriptures? You have access to it. You want to hear what the wonderful counselor has to say? Open up the Word of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart and hear what He says. You don't have to travel like the queen of Sheba all the way to Jerusalem to hear Solomon like she did. You can just open the Scriptures. And you have access to the wonderful counselor that is there the wonderful counselor. I think within the context as well, just a little bit of context here, why would that be so important for this king who is coming? People of Israel, people of Judah both knew 
when you have good and godly leadership, good things happen. Not perfect leadership, right? David was not perfect. Solomon was far from perfect. Both of them were far from perfect. But what happened when you had people who were in positions of leadership that, while not perfect, and committed some atrocities? Solomon, we know, towards the end of his life. David, we know. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and so on as well. What happens when you have godly leadership? What happens when Hezekiah rules? What happens when Josiah rules? The nation's blessed. The nation reaps the benefits of wise leadership. And this one who would come would be such a counselor. He'd be full of supernatural counselor, full of supernatural counsel. And the nation, the people that are under him, are going to reap innumerable blessings from that, even as his people currently do, who are under his leadership and under his governance right now. Next, we see that he would be called Mighty God. And that, that, that would take you back, I think, as one of the initial readers or hearers of Isaiah's prophecy. Or I, I get he's a child that would be born. I get that he's a son who would be given, at least to the degree that I can. But he's going to be what? El Gibor? Mighty God? The word El is, a, is, identific- is an identification for God. Gibor speaks of a mighty one. See it used in the Old Testament, it speaks of a, of a heroic one, a valiant one, a mighty one. Sometimes it could be used negatively, sometimes it gets used positively. This one would be a mighty one. He'd be a warrior for his people. He'd be strong on behalf of his people, and he would be God. You can see very clearly the identification of the Messiah with Yahweh, because in the very next chapter, this identification, El Gibor, is used to identify Yahweh. So make no mistake, what you see right here, contextually, is meant to be a clear witness to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mighty one. The Messiah would be a valiant, mighty, and heroic warrior who can preserve his people even as he is doing in the here and now. He is strong enough to hold you regardless of whatever you are going through or will go through. He's strong enough to hold you and preserve you and keep you unto that day when you see him face to face. He's strong enough to do that and he's strong enough to one day make all opposition to his kingdom cease. That's how strong he is. He's strong in the here and now to preserve and keep and to govern according to his providence. And he's strong enough to one day bring an end to all opposition to his kingdom, as in the day of Midian. And then we come to this identification here, everlasting father. Everlasting father. This is another wonderful identification of the Messiah. Now the phrase could be rendered as everlasting father, or it could be rendered as Father of the ages or Father of eternity. Now, if it's the former, if it's everlasting Father, if these Hebrew words are meant to be understood like that, it doesn't alleviate the distinction between the Father and the Son as in the false teaching of modalism does. The distinction of, es- the distinction of persons within the Trinity and the unity of essence is in a plethora of verses in the Scripture, all over the place. Rather... What I think makes this uh, description so beautiful is that it connotes how Jesus is forever father-like towards his people. The way way a king would be understood to be a, a, a kind of fatherly figure who is meant to kind of rule in a fatherly way, not just with might. Look how this beautifully counterbalances, if you will, the previous identification. It's not just that he's strong and mighty, but he's father like He's the everlasting Father. He's forever Father-like towards His people in that 
He has the kind of compassion, concern, affection, and tenderness towards his people as a loving father does for his children. This, this is the kind of language, by the way, that's used. So I'm not just pulling that out of nowhere. It's the kind of language that's used of, say, Eliakim. Eliakim, who was, uh, I think, a kind of type of Christ. You would see Eliakim identified in Isaiah 22. Without going into extended detail, he was a steward that was appointed in light of unfaithful Shebna. Don't worry about who unfaithful Shebna is. Don't worry about all the details of that. But that's who this man was, and he was to be a, 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 a steward. And he is described in this way, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So a, a father figure, even as kings were to be, as a loving, compassionate father. Now, the other possibility, and, and I'd I lean more towards the former, but I won't um, alleviate the possibility of the latter here. The other possibility is that the phrase everlasting father could be read as father of eternity or father of the ages, so that father is basically synonymous with creator, speaking of Jesus' role in creation. And that is undoubtedly possible, and we know, according to John chapter 1, verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. But assuming the former, the imagery of fatherhood, it does provide warmth amidst the other descriptions appropriate to the son who loves his people. The son of God, we know, is the express image of the father, to use language from Hebrews 1.3. And he will be ever, forever be fatherlike to the seed for whom he has made his soul an offering for sin. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Last description in verse 6. He will be called Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Now those in Isaiah's day, they knew about wars and they knew about battles and they doubtless longed for peace. Now in the here and now, does Jesus bring peace to His people? He does. He brings peace to His people in the here and now. You are in this world, but you can have good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. He leaves you His peace. He gives you His peace. I say it to you every Sunday during the announcements, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that the peace of God is meant to keep coming your way. The peace of God, to use language from Colossians 3, is to rule in our hearts. The peace of God surpasses understanding. It's meant to guard our hearts and minds. Please know, the Prince of Peace is reigning right now in the hearts of His people. He's reigning as He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And right now he's providing peace to his people as a result of them having peace with God through faith in him. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have it upon conversion and you have it continually in the Christian life as a gift that God keeps giving to you. But here in the context, in the context, I think we see a pointer towards the fact that peace will eventually come to this chaotic world. And peace will not come. No matter what world leaders have tried to do or will try to do, peace will not come until the Prince of Peace comes. And when the Prince of Peace comes, He will bring about peace. He will establish peace. And it will be glorious. I would encourage you to see the, spiritual, the scriptural depictions of worldwide peace as kind of postcards from the future. 
That's how I imagine it in my mind. Imagine if you just you went into your mailbox and you get these postcards from the future. I don't know how that would happen. It's my mind. I was just imagining it. But imagine if you get these pictures. Like, this is what it's going to be like in the future. I think that's kind of what it's like when you read Isaiah 2 or you read Micah 4 or you read Isaiah 11. There are these postcards from the future that are meant to fan the flame of hope in the present. If you look in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, for instance, you'll see the picture of nations beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks because warfare will cease with the Prince of Peace's arrival. You just won't need it anymore. We don't need weapons of war. You don't need tanks. You don't need guns. You don't need any of those things. So you turn them into agricultural tools because you don't need it because the Prince of Peace is here. Peace will not only characterize the interaction of nations, but the interaction of animals between themselves and human beings. It's beautiful. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 8. Whether it's wolves lying down with lambs and so on, and the the, the pictures are beautiful. They're all there in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 8. Of his people, he says, Isaiah chapter 32, verse 18, My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. So there is a personal peace that you are to enjoy now. Think of it as this way. There's a river that flows right now of personal peace from the Messiah right to you. But one day that river will flow into a worldwide ocean after the conquest of Jesus' return. So the river's flowing now. You get to be a benefactor, a beneficiary of it now. But one day that river will give way to the ocean and there will be worldwide peace that follows Christ's conquest. Now we come to verse 7. And in verse 7 we see the following. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So that speaks of an unending reign. So when this happens, it's not just going to be for a season. It's not just going to be for a time. It's not just going to be for a certain epoch. When this happens, it is going to be unending. Again, Even right now, he's reigning in the hearts and lives of his people. Even right now, he's at the right hand of the Father. But the kind of things that are described here in Isaiah chapter 9, when they reach their apex and their culmination and fulfillment, when it comes, it's never going back. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, so much that we could say about that, This is going to be in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David that his seed would be seated on the throne and would reign. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. This truth that Gabriel reinforced when he visited Mary and told her not only that she would conceive a son and that his name would be Jesus, not only that he would be called great and the son of the Most High, but that the Lord God would give him the throne of his father David and he would reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom would have no end. And furthermore, when we go on, we see that he would sit on the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. So we're told that this reign would be a just reign. No more will people be arrested for praying outside of abortion clinics. Don't know if you saw that this past week and what happened um, in Britain, I believe. No more will, no, there won't be those kind of clinics anyway. No more will government officials be able to skirt justice or pervert justice. Won't happen. No more will governments oppress people and suppress the voice of their citizenry. Won't happen. 
He will rule over His kingdom. You look at the language to order it. Essentially means to confirm it. Essentially means to cause it to stand and establish it. It's kind of synonymous. To make it firm with judgment and justice. Now I want you to see, He will be the ideal monarch not only by way of character. He will be the ideal monarch by way of character, but He will be the ideal monarch by way of capacity as well. He will be able single-handedly to bring this about with His power because of who He is. Human kings may triumph over enemies, at least for a time, but this king will not only trounce the opposition, he will have the ability to establish a kingdom of righteousness. What power. The child who was born will be able to, be, to both establish and order his kingdom perfectly and unendingly from that time forward and forever. Now I call your attention to the very last line, and that's where we close today. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. I find this last line rather interesting. The zeal of the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of hosts or Yahweh of armies will perform this. Will perform this. I can't say this for certain. This is my opinion. My opinion is, I'd imagine that Isaiah and the Lord working through him perceived his hearers to be perhaps a little bit like Sarah when she was told that she would bear a child. Kind of like, really? I mean, th- this sounds very pie in the sky. It's like, oh, do you see what we're living in now? Do you see the gloom? Do you see the weather forecast? I have the opinion that many people would be asking, how shall this be? This sounds so grandiose. And my opinion is, I think the Lord included a statement that kind of functioned as an additional stamp of assurance through Isaiah the zeal of Yahweh of armies, of Yahweh of hosts, will perform this. You know, one of the things that people often enjoy about sports is to recall how certain superstars made guarantees of winning and then actually came through on it. You know, some of you, if you're football fans, you might remember, you know, a certain football player doing that. You, hockey fans, you might remember a certain player doing that. Maybe Joe Namath, maybe Mark Messier from the former to the latter and so on. One of the ones that I remember, I remember being a, uh, a rather big fan of the San Antonio Spurs back in 2014 and 2013. I just loved watching them play basketball. I thought it was beautiful basketball to watch. I loved watching that team. They win game six. They had lost. The previous year to the Miami Heat, it was, a, for San Antonio Spurs fans, it could be described as a heartbreaking loss to the Miami Heat in uh, the previous finals. But then they're getting back to the finals after they win Game 7 against the Oklahoma City Thunder. And after that, during the post-game press conference, I remember watching it and being shocked by what I heard. Tim Duncan, Hall of Fame um, power forward, he says during the interview, we've got four more to win, we'll do it this time. And I remember thinking as like a, a Spurs fan, like, oh, like, you just gave them bulletin board material, them being the Miami Heat, who you have to face in the finals. And I just know as like a fallible human being, like, you can't really make such guarantees. But then they, they came through on it. I think, I might be wrong, I think they won in five games, but they dominated the series. It was beautiful basketball to watch, and they dominated the series. And I think, I think in that, we get a little creaturely imperfect glimpse of what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. It's creaturely, it's imperfect, but a little glimpse of what's going on here. Yahweh guaranteeing victory. 
His word is enough. The fact that he said it is enough. But I think when you get to the end of verse 7, he's saying, uh, Isaiah speaking um, on behalf of the Lord here, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this as though to say, I guarantee you everything that I said will happen. The child who is born and the son who is given will win. There will be rejoicing. There will be liberation. There will be celebration. There will be a cessation to all wars and there will be peace. I guarantee it. My zeal will bring it about. Praise God. Yahweh, you might say, if you will, it's not bereft of passion. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. So I say that to say, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to close for today, I want you to be, I want you to be reminded that gloom, whether personal or global, will give way to light. We see it so often in the here and now, right? Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I want you to know you serve a God who has this cycle of having gloom give way to light. And one day gloom will give way to light and there will be no more gloom ever again. Ever again. And so every Christian can say like the old gospel song says. I don't know how old, but it's old enough. I have heard all of the bad news in the paper. And it seems like things are getting bleaker every day. But for this child of God, it makes no difference. Because it's bound to get much better either way. (laughs) Either way. So may you, by the grace of God, embrace His rule in the here and now. Embrace Him in the here and now. Don't just admire the light. Walk in the light. Don't just know that He's going to bring celebration and He's going to bring deliverance from oppression, and he's going to bring a cessation of war. Take a cue from Isaiah. Let a little bit of Isaiah verses 3 and 4 rub off on you. Turn it into second person language. You praise him for that. Tell him, you're going to do this. Don't just hear it. Don't just say it in the third person way. Take a cue from Isaiah. Let Isaiah rub off on you and praise God for it. And walk in the light of the one who has come. To know him as Lord. And when you know him as Lord, you know, you start whistling a new tune. Start marching, if you will, to continue the music metaphor to the beat of a new drum. Like Mary, your spirit rejoices in God your Savior. Like the Magi, you fall down before Him and worship Him. And like the shepherds, you become increasingly zealous to let others hear about Him. May it be. May it be. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Oh, how nourishing it is, Lord. Thank You for the truth that You have set before us to marvel at, to rejoice in, to live in light of. Thank You for shining light into the darkness of our hearts. Thank You for being the God who has promised that gloom will give way to light. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for all of the joy that we get to experience in the here and now, the freedom that we get to experience in the here and now, the peace that we get to celebrate in the here and now. And we thank You, Heavenly Father, for the joy and the freedom and the peace that awaits What a God you are. May you be well glorified this day. May your Son be well extolled in our hearts and in our words even as we go about this day, Lord. And may you continue to extend your reign in the hearts and lives of those who are gathered in this place. And may the child who is born and the Son who is given be exalted and have the place of preeminence in our lives, Lord. By your grace, For His glory, and it's in His name we pray, Amen.